But I wanted to finish Ephesians chapter 1 because we are here at the end before we begin that. And so here we are at the end of the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. I think it would be helpful for us for the sake of context to read the entire chapter one more time. So we're going to do that here at the outset. And then I want to set us up for what we're going to see today in verses 20 to 23, which will be the focus of our text. So Ephesians chapter 1, start in verse 1. We will go down all the way through verse 23. I've said to you in the past that in many ways the most important thing that we do on any Sunday is not comment on the text, but just read the text. So uh, it's possible, of course, that any of us can comment incorrectly, but God's Word is eternal and faithful. So I, I call you now with submission and hope to listen as I read along. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 23. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May the Lord Jesus bless us through his spirit, we who are his saints. Our city this past week was touched with a fear that we thought perhaps would not come anytime soon. Someone in the name of radical Islam, who ISIS has now claimed acted in their name, drove his car onto a sidewalk down on Ohio State's campus running into a number of people and then took a knife out and slashed a number of them, sending 11 people to the hospital. And then he himself was 
killed by a policeman who came to defend the innocent. We have tasted here in our backyard what it's like to be touched by unexpected violence. And it's a reminder once again that this world is not right, that there is untold brokenness here, that there is violence in the hearts of the unjust and the just alike, and it only takes a little bit of provocation and a little bit of belief that is off-center to drive people to do horrific things, unspeakable things, and to strike fear into the hearts of those who seem to not be able to control their own existence, like us. We cannot control our own existence. And if we're being honest, we fear all kinds of things around us. We don't just fear ISIS. Most of us probably don't think a lot about that until it comes into our backyard. But we fear cancer. We fear getting old. We fear death. We fear loneliness. We fear that perhaps we won't measure up. We fear that we don't have quite what it takes. We fear that if people really saw down deep into our hearts that that they wouldn't like what they saw because we know we don't like what we see. I've been a pretty fearful person most of my life. I think that reveals to me that I have kind of a strange personality. It also reveals to me that I have not yet fully been conquered by the person of Jesus to trust Him as I should. When I was a child, just a little child, um, I was always afraid my house would burn down. We had those little space heaters when I was a kid, the ones that ran along the wall. And I remember when I was a kid that my stuffed animals would fall down, like my Kermit the Frog would fall down by my space heater. And I'd wake up in the morning and I would smell this horrible burning smell and I would reach down and grab Kermit by his Velcro hand and he would have a burn mark on his face. Um, And so as I got older, I learned that I could turn the thermostat down and I would freeze because of it, but I would go to my thermostat like six or seven times a night and just make sure it was off even though I knew I had just turned it off 10 seconds ago. I I would go out into the family room where our front door was after my family had gone to bed and I would make sure the door was locked multiple times. This is, this is how I lived for a lot of my life. I was a very fearful person. Now, I'm not still doing that for the most part, although I do admit occasionally I will get back up at night from time to time and make sure I turn the alarm on even though I know I did. For the most part, those strange idiosyncrasies have left me. But, but they residually are still in me, and, and they manifest themselves in, in other unhealthy ways. I fear whether or not I'll always be able to take care of my wife and children. I fear whether or not I'll be able to do a good job in my occupation. I have a lot of fears. The fears of our nation were revealed, I believe, in the past several months. Some people are happy with the outcome of the recent election. Some are not. But the fears were exposed, and they even remain to this day. We, we are a fearful people. And the question remains for us, how is that going to be taken care of? And as we began last week, looking into the the manner of Paul's prayers, which is what he reveals to us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, I think we will find today in the second portion of this section that Paul wants us to know that as the people of God, we can have absolute 
unshakable confidence that He is for us and with us and will withhold nothing good from us. And that because of that, we can be a people that rest under His sovereign care with joy and peace. And so we will take our time to work through verses 20 through 23 today, and I hope that as a result, at the end, we will come away with a deeper confidence in Jesus our Lord, who has been exalted by God the Father, and He now is exalted over all things, and one day He will come and put down all opposition But until then, until our final rest is fully realized, we can trust Him in the here and now. We have been granted, as we saw earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, an unshakable inheritance that is ours for forever. And today is one more chance to look into that. As review, we saw last week the basis of Paul's prayers and As we brought it forward to ourselves, the basis of our own prayers, Paul wanted the people in Ephesus to know that he remembered them all the time. He prayed for them, and he prayed for them because they had an unshakable confidence in the gospel, in Jesus himself, and this resulted in moral transformation. They were becoming more like their Savior. Jesus had loved them, and they trusted him, and this spilled out in the way that they loved other people. So Paul prayed for them on that behalf. The content of our prayers, the content of Paul's prayers were revealed in verses 17 through 19 where he told the people in Ephesus that their hope is that they were reconciled children. And also, they could have hope in the fact that God's power was leveraged on their behalf. And so, again, I say to us, Paul has given us instructions and verses 15 through 23, as to where our hope lies. And this formed the basis of many of Paul's prayers. And he wanted the church to know that that they were secure in Jesus. In fact, as we have already read together today, Paul said in verse 17 that he wanted the people in Ephesus to know that they had everything they needed. The Father of glory had given them everything they needed. And so he said, I pray that you will have a spirit of wisdom. I pray that you will understand who you are, that you will have full revelation of the knowledge of Him. What has He done for you? Well, I pray that your hearts will be enlightened, that you will know what He has done for you, the hope to which He has called you, the riches of the inheritance that is ours, and the immeasurable greatness of His power that has been granted to us. Paul prayed for the people in Ephesus over and over and over again that they would know their Savior, and they would know who they were in Him. So Paul speaks of power in verse 19. This was a common theme in the city of Ephesus. We won't take time to turn there today, but if you were to look back into Acts chapter 19, where we find Paul ministering in the city of Ephesus for over three years. Paul was ministering in a context that was very superstitious. He was ministering in a city that was enamored with magic. In fact, we know that a lot of the people who came to faith in Jesus, who became believers, Christians, that they brought their magic books and they were burned 
and the value of those was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. These were a people that were caught up in, in magical power. It was a common theme in the ancient Roman Empire that each city had a patron god that watched over their city. It was kind of like a guardian god. And each Roman city believed that as long as they held on to faith in their guardian god, and by the way, they kept the name of that god secret, they wouldn't tell it to the other cities around them. In fact, they were reticent to even say the name out loud, believing that if the demons heard them say it out loud, that somehow their god would be conquered and their city would be you know, exposed to, to danger. This was common throughout the Roman Empire to believe in magical powers that you could not see. And people lived in fear all the time. People back then were not so much different than us. So Paul is saying to this church, to the believers in this church, that fear is natural. Paul understood it. The people in Ephesus definitely understood it. But what Paul wants the people in Ephesus to know is they don't need to live in fear of things they see, or of things that they don't see. And he wants them to know that the one who spoke all things into existence, the one who sent his son to die for their transgressions, had appointed his son to be in charge, to be the ruler of all things, and that because of this, they could live in peace. So Paul wants them to know He wants their hearts to be enlightened that the power of God has been leveraged on their behalf and they can live under His sovereign rule. Well, what kind of power has He granted? What does that power look like? What has it accomplished? Well, first, God the Father has granted Jesus authority over all things. God the Father has granted Jesus authority over over all things. Now, only God can do that because God made all things. As we will learn a bit later on, He made all things through His Son. But God has divine authority over all things. They belong to Him. They belong to Him because He made them. They belong to Him because He is the only true God. And God the Father has granted to Jesus our Savior the one who laid his life down for the sheep, he has granted him authority over all things. This was initiated when he raised him from the dead. Seemingly an inconquerable thing, seemingly something that that could not be undone, God undid death through Jesus. God poured out his wrath on Jesus at the cross that sin and death might be conquered, and that was ratified when He raised Him from the dead. And then Jesus ascended back to heaven, and it says here in verse 20 that He was seated beside the Father. This echoes for us the thought that the work of Jesus is finished. Jesus is not still scrambling to accomplish the, the conquest over sin and death. He's already done that. And He is seated beside the Father. This demonstrates to us that Jesus not only has a seat of honor, but it also demonstrates to us that He has already finished His work. But He is still working 
on our behalf. The work of redemption is, is finished in a sense, but He is still working on our behalf because the redeemed are not yet with Him, and evil has not yet been fully put down. And though the atonement of Christ has been settled, Jesus still ministers on our behalf next to the Father, and He rules over all things in this seated position. So Jesus is in the heavenly places. We've already seen back in verse 3 of this chapter that we have been granted every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We will find in chapter 2, verse 6, that there's a sense to which we are already seated with Him in the heavenly places, which means that as Jesus is currently presiding over all things, that, that we are with Him, that, that we are on His mind, that, that we are on His heart that He does all things not only for His own glory, but for our good. That's a shocking thought. For if Jesus is in the heavenly places, seated next to the Father, presiding over all things, and we are with Him in some strange, mysterious sense, that means that He is not only presiding over all things toward the end of bringing His glory to pass, or, or showing His glory, demonstrating His glory here in the cosmos, but He's doing it with us in mind. That's frankly a pretty shocking thought. That means that nothing that happens in His presiding over all things and in His governance over all things, nothing happens toward that end that is not done not only for His glory, but for our joy and our good. And Paul writes these things down to tell the Ephesian believers what he prayed for them. He prayed that they would know this. As we struggle with our anxiety, as we struggle with our ever-present stress, I I don't think that often we really believe the good news. I think often we don't really believe the gospel. Now, maybe cognitively do. Maybe it's tucked away in our heads somewhere. If somebody were to, to make us take a quiz, we could get a lot of the answers right. I mean, after all, we we try to be a pretty theologically astute church, but But I think when it really comes down to it, I think a lot of us don't really believe the gospel. And the good news is that we don't just escape the fires of hell. The good news is that we get God back. The good news is that He unites us to Himself as His children. And the good news is He's taking all the broken things and putting them back together. The good news is He's taking all the sad things and making them come untrue. The good news is as He's taking all things that may be arrayed against us, evil, brokenness, sadness, and sorrow, and He is presiding over all of them as our Savior and as our Lord, and we can have absolute full confidence in Him. God the Father has granted Jesus authority over all things. Turn with me, please, to Psalm 110. This is a psalm that is quoted a number of times in the New Testament. Therefore, we can draw from that that this is an important psalm because it really prophesied in many ways who Jesus would be. David says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. 
Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I don't have time to unpack all of that, but I am going to just suggest a couple of things. David wrote that in some senses about himself. He was God's chosen leader. But there's elements of this text that David never fulfilled. Melchizedek is this sort of shadowy figure that shows up in the life of Abraham. Melchizedek was unique because he was not only a king, he was a priest. That is not common for kings. Kings are usually kings and priests are usually priests. But Melchizedek had more than one office, so to speak. David never fulfilled that. But there would be one who would come, the promised anointed one who would be just that, a king and a priest. And as we look into Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22-23, we find that God has exalted His Son above all things. This was prophesied. And rather than just being enamored with the fact that prophecies are brought to pass in the New Testament, I want you to understand that the longing for this, the longing for a perfect king, the longing for a perfect priest, one who would reign over his people in perfect righteousness, one who could intercede for his people with perfect faithfulness, even the best of kings never fulfilled that. David didn't fulfill that. His son didn't fulfill that. No one ever did. And it reveals to us that there is an ache in the hearts of God's image bearers for perfect righteous rule and for perfect peace with God. But no human ruler had ever been able to accomplish that. What would this ruler one day receive? Look with me in Daniel chapter 7. In this section of Daniel, Daniel is being given visions from God as to how the history of the world would play out. We find great hostility against God and God's people at the first part of Daniel chapter 7. But in Daniel chapter 7 verse 9, we find the scene turning. As I looked, Daniel says, thrones were placed. In the Ancient of Days, this is God, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. This is one of the God's enemies. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." To whom would the Ancient of Days, God, dare to give the keys to the kingdom, the deed to the earth? One who was like Him, but one who was also Son of Man. Son of God, Son of Man. This is Jesus, our Savior. 
And because He was not only Son of God, but Son of Man, who lived in perfect obedience to His Father, who was the second Adam, who succeeded where Adam failed, who kept all the laws of God where Adam disobeyed, who atoned for the sins of His people by substituting for them, Jesus, Son of God and Jesus, Son of Man, is given authority over all things. And He answers the longings of the human heart for a perfect leader who can represent us before God and reconcile us to Him. Ever since the beginning of mankind, humanity has wanted to be led in peace. Humanity has, been, has wanted peace with the Almighty, even if they can't quantify it as such, even if they can't speak it as such. In other words, most of the world is scrambling with stress and anxiety, looking for peace and rest, and they can't find it. It explains all of our idols. It explains our, cra- our craving for money. It explains our greed. It explains our lust for sex. It explains why we want influence and power. It explains every single idol. We want peace. But who can lead us there? And who can conquer our rebellious hearts and bring us back to the one who alone can give us that peace? Abraham couldn't. Moses couldn't. Samuel couldn't. And so the people clamored for a king. Saul was a miserable failure. And though David in many ways was righteous, David was a failure in so many ways. His son certainly was. After his son, the kingdom was torn in two, never to be put back together again. And by and large, most of the kings of Israel and Judah were horrific failures. By the time you get to the day of Jesus, the people are living under Roman opposition. They don't even have their own king. They hate the one that they've been given, and they want life to be better. In many ways, it's not much better in the time of Jesus than it was when the people were under opposition and captivity in Egypt. Every king foreign or domestic, had been a failure. But Jesus would come, and He would be given the keys to the kingdom because God was pleased with Him, and He would rule over His people in perfect righteousness. There's a great connection to Christmas, to Jesus' first advent. Turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 9. These are verses with which most of us are pretty familiar. But this theme of the kingship of Jesus the one who is the fulfillment of all the longings of His people, we find in Isaiah 9, 1-7. through But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, He who brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Just very quickly, Israel had experienced opposition. Israel had experienced in some ways abandonment by God because of their sin. They had been put low because of their sin. But hope would be granted to them by what means? Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff are his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
the very boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And as we look together once again at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, we find that God has finally accomplished all of that in Christ. The longings of every human heart, the ache for something better, God has accomplished that in Christ. The one who atoned for our sins The one who was raised in glorious power now is seated beside the Father in the heavenly places. Verse 21 tells us that He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. That is to say, in sort of a wordy way, there is nothing that has happened in the past There is nothing that you are currently aware of in the present. There is nothing that will come down the pike in the future that will take away your inheritance and that can conquer the rule of our sovereign Lord Jesus. And because you have already been seated with Him in the heavenly places, you have been united to Him. So what do you have to fear? Is cancer fearful? course it is. Does death still hold a specter over us? Yes. Is it natural to be, to be fearful about poverty? To be stressed out about the future? To, to worry about loneliness? To, to wonder about the fabric of our relationships and whether or not they'll hold fast? It's natural, my brothers and sisters. It's natural. We will fear these things. But the question for us is not whether those fears are natural. The question is what do we do when we feel them? What do we do when they are present? Where do you turn when when stress presses in? Where do you turn when anxiety presides? I have a feeling, and we will learn more about this when we eventually get to Ephesians chapter 6, but I have a feeling But when it really comes down to it, the evil one, Satan, the opposer of all things good, I have a feeling he doesn't really care that much if we're doctrinally astute. I don't think he loves that, but I don't think he cares that much. Because if doctrinal astuteness, if if knowing good truth does not result in a transformation in belief and behavior, what good does it do us? Now, you know me well enough, and you know this church well enough to know that we care about doctrinal truth very, very much here. So we take our time through books of the Bible. But it's not enough merely to know things. And what Paul is saying in this section is he doesn't just want them to know it in their heads. He wants them to believe it. So I say to you, do you know that Jesus is Lord over all things? Things seen and things unseen. 
things you've experienced and things you haven't even thought about yet. Yes, He is. But do you believe that? I mean, do you really feel it? Do you work at believing it? Here's the thing. Most of us, whenever we're stressed, most of us, whenever the pressures of life press in, most of us, when the new things that have not yet been named finally come to light and freak us out, most of us have a tendency to turn inward. We curve inward. We look into our hearts and we try to find a way out. We try to find a way to scramble out from underneath the stress and the pressure. Most of us, whenever we face that kind of stress and anxiety, turn to our idols, our pet idols, the ones that can temporarily bring us some kind of solace. It might be entertainment or leisure, which in and of itself is not bad. could be money. could be a, a host of things, good gifts. But when those good gifts become our confidence rather than God Himself, and in particular here in this section, Jesus Himself, our Lord, then we are demonstrating that we don't really believe these things. So I say to you, those of you who are, who are struggling today with fear, stress, anxiety, depression, dissatisfaction, and fear of what has not yet come, that you must take a thousand looks at Christ. It is not enough, my dear brothers and sisters, to merely know that Jesus is king in your head. You've got to have this poured down deep into your heart, and it has to be nurtured day by day. And the only way that this fundamental truth can be nurtured is by looking thousands of time into his word and by talking back to God about it. Isn't that what Paul is telling the Ephesian believers he did for them? Paul knew the truth, and he prayed that they would understand it and believe it and walk in light of it. And so I say to you today, because of how difficult this life is, and because we still await the second advent of Jesus, whenever he will put all things under his feet, this is an age of struggle. So please keep looking to Jesus and don't just do this by yourself. Help each other do this. When you see your brother or sister struggling, don't just pat them on the back and tell them it's going to be okay. Don't give them a token, I'll pray for you, and then forget about it. Pray with them right then. Take them to the Word of God. Spend time with them. Spend time together praying to the Lord Jesus, exploring His Word together. And as I've already said to you, you must take thousands of looks at Christ. The good news is not just some antiquated historical fact for you. The gospel is for every day. And the good news for you is that you've been rescued from sin and you have a Savior who is seated right now in His settled work and He's ruling over all things, presiding over all things. He is the governor over all things good and bad and He is your Lord and you can trust Him. And as we come into a season that is not only full of joy but strangely and ironically also brings out the greatest depression and sadness. That's what Christmas is. You need a fresh look at Jesus, who He is and what He has done. So please keep looking to Jesus. God the Father has granted Him authority over all things.
But not only that, God the Father has united us to Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Look in verse 22. And He, God the Father, put all things under His feet, under Jesus' feet, and gave Him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. If Paul has not already said enough, if Paul has not already demonstrated to the Ephesian believers what they should know and how this should bring them hope and peace, he ups the ante here. And he says that in some mysterious sense, we have been united to the second person of the Trinity. We are not only seated next to Him, we are with Him. Our lives are bound up in His, and He's the head of this church. God the Father has granted Jesus authority over all things, and He has united us, rebel sinners, to His Son, making Him our Savior and our Lord. Look with me, please, in Colossians chapter 1. Paul says something pretty similar here in these few verses. He, Jesus, Colossians 1.15 is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Jesus is Lord of everything. Verse 18, He's also Lord of the church. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Notice in verse 19 that in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then look with me, please, quickly in Colossians chapter 2. Once again in verse 9, Paul echoes a similar thought. For in Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Verse 10 is full of profound truth. And you, we, have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is Lord over all things. He is Lord also over His people, the church. And if He is the fullness of God and we've been filled in Him, I say to you, beloved, what do we lack? Of course, the answer is nothing. Look with me, please, once again in Revelation chapter 1. We had our scripture reading earlier in our service from Revelation chapter 1, but I want to remind you of what we've already read and what we have learned this morning as we sum up today's teaching time. Revelation chapter 1, we find that Jesus appears to John trying to comfort him, but also he's going to give warnings to the church. This Jesus Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead, and He's the ruler of kings on earth. Similar thoughts that we see in Ephesians chapter 1. Look with me at the second portion of verse 5. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to His God the Father, to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Look with me, please. In verse 17, when he, John, saw him, Jesus, he fell at his feet as though dead. But Jesus laid his right hand on John, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. 
I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Beloved, Jesus is Lord over all things and he is Lord of his people, the church. Look with me quickly, please, in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. John says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is our destiny. That is the destiny of the church. The one who is the ruler of all things is the sovereign Savior and lover of the church. And one day He will come and unite His bride to Himself and we will dwell with Him in perfect peace and hope. This same Lord Jesus, starting in verse 11 of Revelation chapter 19, is one who will ride a white horse. He will be given a name called Faithful and True, and in righteousness He will judge and make war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems, crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were falling with Him on white horses. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rue them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who will invite him to sit with him at the feast will also put down all evil. We know this from Revelation chapter 21. When the new Jerusalem comes down, Jesus will come and wipe away, verse 4, every tear from the eyes of his people. Death will be no more. There'll never be any more mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. In verse 22, there'll be no more need for a temple, for its temple is the Lord, the God, the Almighty, the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is a picture of peace, and it's coming for the people of God. I invite you to take some time to read through Revelation chapter 19 all the way through chapter 22. I'm just suggesting that this section is not just for theological speculation as to how it's all going to end up, but it was written down for our hope. The one who is the ancient of days, the one who is the Lord of His church, He wrote these things for His people through John that we might know them and have peace. But as we sum up today, Paul wanted the Ephesian believers to know these things, to be fully assured of these things. But God the Father has granted Jesus, our Lord and Savior, authority over all things. And He has united us to Him as our Savior and Lord. 
And so I say to you, as we face another season that is mixed with joy and sorrow, peace and anxiety, the only answer is Jesus. The application for today is a little bit intangible. This is not a section that really tells us to do anything that will come later in Ephesians. But I think there are a couple implications. I think one of the implications of this text is that if you don't explore these things on your own, if you don't really go know them and, and I mean, like, really have them settle down into your heart, you'll, you'll never lead a life that is characterized by peace. So, at the risk of being a little bit simple, you have to read your Bibles. You have to know them. And not just once. Sunday is not enough. Small group is not enough. Your heart has to be taught. Your faith has to be nurtured day by day by day. I mean, how quickly do we turn from a decent sermon where we've been exposed to the Word of God and by Sunday night or Monday morning, we don't believe it at all. This stuff has to be nurtured. Not only that, and again at the risk of being a bit simple, you've got to then go work it out in prayer. You've got to beg God's Spirit to impress these things upon your heart and help you to believe them and to live in light of them. Because if you don't, inevitably, you will turn elsewhere. You will turn to other sources of peace and rest. And as you have found, and as I have found, hundreds if not thousands of times, all those other sources of peace and rest, which hold out to us the hope of just that, peace and rest, they're just masquerading messiahs. They can't be good substitutes. So I say to you today, you've got to know God. You've got to spend time with Him in His Word, and you've got to spend time talking to Him. Then as a practical application, as I've already hinted at today, do that together. One of the most loving things that you can do for your spouse or your children or your brother or your sister when you see them struggling is to do this together. I know it can be awkward. I know it can be weird. But brothers and sisters, if we are going to make it in the sojourn, if we are not going to be overcome by all the things that we fear, if we're not going to turn to all the things that masquerade as messiahs, we need each other to be reminded of what is true and right and lasting and holy. And that is your job as the body. So we exist together as the body of Jesus under His Lordship and under His care, pointing each other back to Him because He is the Lord of all things. We close with these words from Paul in Ephesians 6. We are to be praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. May God help us all to learn from this model of Paul, to look to Jesus, who is our only hope. May we do it individually, and may we do it together. And may Jesus be glorified in this church. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray now that you will impress these truths upon our hearts, that we will understand them, may they be not snatched away by the evil one, may they settle in and be understood, and then may we believe them and live in light of them. Help us, your people, to rest under the authority and lordship of Jesus. May this bring us peace. Jesus, even now as you are seated beside the Father, even now as we are seated with you, and I don't really know what all that means, but even now, bless your people. 
cause your face to shine upon them and give them peace. And may we walk in full assurance of faith, faithfully before you. Help us to do that and help us to do it together. We pray that you would answer these prayers for your glory and for our eternal joy.